Hi and welcome to the Engineered Mind podcast, a podcast about engineering, AI, neuroscience and other interesting topics of life to educate and inspire people all around the world. I'm your host Yusuf and for this episode I welcome Anatoly Buchin. Anatoly joined the Allen Institute in 2017 and works in modeling, analysis and theory group, short MAT. He is currently working on detailed biophysical simulations of individual neurons and networks of human hippocampus. The goal of this work is to understand how single cell biophysical properties determine the normal and pathologic dynamics in the human brain. The particular focus of his research are the mechanisms of temporal lobe epilepsy and potential intervention using brain stimulation. Before joining Allen Institute, Anatoly was a postdoc in the lab of Adrian Ferrell at the University of Washington. His research involved analyzing the calcium imaging data of neural net of Hydra vulgaris from Raphael Justi Lab in Columbia University. Anatoly received his PhD in computational neuroscience from École Normale Supérieure in Paris, a degree in biophysics from St. Petersburg Polytechnic University and a degree in interdisciplinary research from Paris Descartes University and a degree in physics from St. Petersburg Polytechnic University. Ladies and gentlemen, here's my conversation with Anatoly Buchin. Welcome to the podcast. It's an absolute pleasure to have an expert in neuroscience on my show. What I want to start with is maybe people who are interested in your path and what you're actually doing. Maybe you can give a brief overview of what you are doing and who you are. Uh, sure, Josef. Hi, thank you very much for inviting me. So my name is Anatoly Buchin. I am a research scientist at Al Institute for Brain Science. Um, and... I initially, originally I'm from Russia. I started my path in physics where I've been studying physics with a specialization in biophysics in St. Petersburg State Polytechnic University. And then gradually over a bunch of different internships, I realized that actually applying some ideas of modeling and data analysis to neuroscience problems is something that I really want to do. So which brought me to Paris to do my PhD in uh, computational neuroscience our Department of Cognitive Neuroscience. So I was moving away from physics, but still using a lot of tools and methods that we developed. And then later, this brought me to United States, to Al Institute for Brain Science, where I decided to follow, continue my path, where I am currently am. Mm, very exciting, very exciting. Uh, what I read on your page is that you deal with uh, the simulations of individual neurons and networks of human hippocampus. Can you... for uh, person who is not into neuroscience explain what is a neuron and what are you actually doing uh yeah sure and in fact there are a lot of similarities with physics especially with um statist with statistical physics so i would start with with the, with the neuron if you think about an integrator that's probably the way to, how to think about it and in our brain there are a lot of neurons there are presumably as many as stars and the Milky Way galaxies, it's about 100 billion of cells. And every cell, what it's doing, it's receiving the input from a bunch of different other neurons, integrates it, and if the, even if the voltage reaches the threshold, then it generates an action potential and it spreads to other neurons. And every neuron is receiving like on the order of like 10,000 to 30,000 different inputs that come asynchronously at different time. And then this input is being transmitted to about the same amount of neurons. Mm -hmm. So it's like it's it's, it's a highly complex system in terms of input output relationship. Mm -hmm. I see. So you, as yeah. a neuroscientist, um, seeing this whole artificial intelligence subject being so hyped now, and you also know the parallels, like you know how AI works and how neuroscience actually with how the brain works. Do you see parallels there, or do you think that AI drifts away from this how a neuron actually works? Um, I would say that maybe. It's a very broad question, so everyone will have his own bias towards it. Mm -hmm. But uh, as a neuroscientist who I became over course of training, I would say that over the course of human history, everyone was comparing the brain to the most efficient machine that we have these days. Like at the time of Freud, if you read one of his works, you will see that he compares it to the steel and uh, to the steam engine. Uh, then people started comparing the brain to the computer, which probably better analogy. Uh, now, recently, because uh, artificial neural networks are so efficient at dealing with the data we compare it to artificial neural networks, there are different. It's definitely probably much better parallel than just a regular computer. But there are also a lot of substantial differences. And but on the other hand, in the from the historical perspective. Uh, 
artificial neural networks and biological neural networks, they were essentially very much intermingled in the beginning. Like, for example, uh, the discovery of perceptron by Frank Rosenblatt in the, in the 50s has been inspired by uh, how human brain operates. And then there are a couple of times when artificial neural networks were more in favor or, or less in favor where people discover that single neurons cannot compute XOR operations. So, and now we are kind of coming back to it in a way that people look into the how convolutional neural networks work. And Jan LeCun, who actually introduced this neural network architectures, uh, was very much inspired by the visual system of mammals. So I see that this fields start to come together, but there's still a lot of long way to go before we will be able to compare how the brain and how artificial systems operate. Mm, definitely. Can you explain for, um, for the audience, what are you actually doing and how do you apply data science to signals from the brain? Um, yeah, well, we apply data science for many different things, uh, for many different things, signals as well, but also a lot of structural data and how into how the brain is actually organized. Because if you look into the, maybe I'll start with the structural data, and then we'll come, come to the signals and then I'll talk quickly about the actual tools that we are using. So uh, the brain is very complex systems, like every cubic millimeter of the human cortex, neocortex has about three kilometers of wires that are packed into it. Like it's, it's, an, it's an enormous amount. And uh, to understand all these different elements and how the neurons are actually connected, for example, some people are using electron microscopy in our institute. So when you have to isolate, a little, well, you have to freeze a little part of the brain, cut it into 20 nanometer slices, and then uh, image it, and then have an image stack, and then make the algorithm that will do the segmentation. And usually the segmentations are based based on artificial neural, neural networks. But these are like enormous data sets that are petabytes of data that needs to be processed. So there is a lot of big data processing. Kit. And for example, when you have multiple petabytes, it doesn't make sense to transmit it over the internet because it's much easier to record it than the HD and then transfer it. Like this will be the most efficient data transfer, mm. <laughs> physical. Mm. So at the, our institute, we have a lot of different projects. Some of them are related, like they're like, umbrella term. Some of them are related into the recording neural signals and trying to relate them to the stimulus or basically neural coding, how they like looking into how information is represented in, in the brain, in particular in the mouse visual system. Uh, and also we have a big structural science division uh, where I'm currently on. It's a sexual cell typed program when we try to integrate like uh, how neurons respond to electric current, how do they look in the 3D space uh, and uh, their genetic signature, trying to integrate this data together to get some something like, um, not if not periodic table of single cells, then, then at least have a list of different cell types and to try to uh, uh, have a correspondence between how neurons look and how what potential function they might be doing. Mm -hmm. So uh, for the brain signals, for example, um, uh, one of the way to measure how the animals are behaving is basically have the so-called in vivo setting. So when the animal is fixed, head fixed, but it's alive, and then there is a, a part of the school that has been removed, and then in, in this school there is a little plastic area that that is, that is covering the brain, so it's not, it's, so it's not dry. And uh, these animals are not just regular animals, they are so-called transgenic animals, um, meaning that um, they have a special protein that's called GCAMP6. So this protein has been genetically engineered to be expressed specifically in neurons. And what this protein does is uh, when you uh, shine the when you shine the laser beam and this neuron, like of very low intensity, mm -hmm. then this G pro then this protein uh, is basically affecting. Well, it's basically it reacts to the changes in calcium inside the neuron, and then when the calcium goes up inside the neuron, this usually happens when the neuron generates electric current when, it, when a single neuron makes a spike. It absorbs this calcium. Uh, actually, it absorbs this calcium, and then this triggers this GCAM protein to generate the light that can be captured by the microscope. Mm -hmm. 
So what you end up seeing, you end up seeing something like a starry night where instead of stars, you have a little neurons. And these neurons are shining light uh, depending on their state. Like neurons that shine more light, more periodically are more active. And that are shining less light are less active. And that, that's like, it's usually visually very fascinating. You can record from several hundreds of cells, if not thousands. And then you can present different, basically you're recording in the visual area that are responsible for, um, well, basically, this is where the visual signal comes from the eyes. Like first it comes to the eyes, then it comes into the structure in thalamus, and then from thalamus to first, uh, to visual, to, uh, first area of the visual cortex. And then basically you can try to see what is the activity of single cells and how do they um, respond to different visual stimuli. You can basically something try, uh, try to realize something that is called something like a receptive field. So what, what property of the stimuli makes this neuron the most excited? So because this can give us the information about like what this neuron prefers to see. Not really prefers, but what in a way you can think about it, what part of the processing uh, this neuron plays role. Mm -hmm. That's incredibly interesting, Anatolia. Yeah. Can you um, maybe tell us, are these techniques that you use also useful to identify uh, like diseases, for instance? Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, in principle, what we are doing is, uh, and feel free to ask more clarifying questions because I can go like this for hours. Yeah. <laughs> so... Uh, yeah, so actually, actually one of my projects uh, that I'm working on is about human epilepsy. So when we analyze the data that comes from human hippocampus, and the way how this data comes, it's basically not from cadavers, it's from uh, surgical operations, because one of the ways to cure people without, uh, with epilepsy is to remove their epileptogenic region, if epilepsy is generated in one specific region in the brain. Uh, and it's basically it's been in, in the patients that we look at, uh, it's generated in the hippocampus. Uh, this is the area that is responsible for normal conditions for new memory formation. But it's also affected in epilepsy. In about 50% of the cases uh, from epilepsy come from uh, hippocampal epilepsy. So they give this tissue to us, and then we can apply many different methods to understand uh, what are the causes, what makes this tissue more excitable. And the way how we try to answer this question, this is like um, we have a hippocampus, we don't, but we don't have a we have a disease hippocampus, but we don't have a really a control like how, what do we compare it with. So our way was to look into the more diseased versus less diseased hippocampus, mm -hmm. and then we can record activity of single cells uh, of various particular type because there are a lot of different types uh, of neurons inside the nervous system. It's a little bit like a zoo but you have to pick up one particular type that you can identify, then record the acti electric activity from the cells, then inject special marker, it's called biocytin, that goes into a neuron and then it spreads, and then you can see the 3D structure of this neuron later in the imaging process. And then once you have these two data modalities, like morphology, how does the neuron look like, electrophysiology, how does it respond to the current, you can try to make a computational model of the single cell. And this is basically where uh, we come, like modeling people with uh, our expertise in uh, genetic algorithms. So basically, we try to find the parameters for the single cells uh, that would match the input-output relationship that we have measured in the experiments from the single cells. Mm -hmm. Then we can generate certain amount of cells like that and uh, connect them into the artificial network, well, I, I would call the biological neural network. So these are the spiking neural networks. And then you can make uh, these neurons exchange the, the signal that, 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 that they have. So when to make them generate spikes, and you have to add excitatory neurons to add some excitation and inhibitory neurons to control this excitation. So you'll have some kind of balanced activity that is a bit more similar to the activity that can be recorded in the brain. But the advantage of the computational models is that you can run as many experiments as you want mm -hmm. with them. And human tissue is very scarce. I mean, we had like seven patients over two years of the project. So there is no physical possibility to measure everything. And this is where the modeling really comes because you can measure what you can measure and then you can try to make the inferences based on the, um, uh, based on the model, what it predicts. 
because you cannot test infinite amount of hypotheses if you don't have if you don't have huge amounts of data. So basically, in terms of tools, uh, network modeling. Let's put it like this. So mm -hmm. these are essentially dynamical systems. These are essentially dynamical systems, genetic algorithms that we use. And for data analysis, uh, we use methods of dimensionality reduction and uh, classification. So when we compare neurons between different groups and we ask like what features determine neurons from early stage of diseases versus later stage of diseases. So what features are that are determining that? So it's an, it's important to have some kind of not just deep not just deep neural network approach that will help you to predict features that are the most distinct between the groups of cells, but something that is more interpretable. Mm -hmm. that's, that's so we yeah yeah so so there are different methods to do that like. We are using, for example, a random forest classifier mm -hmm. or as one of the ways, but. Mm -hmm. yeah. Thanks a lot for explaining. It's like a, seems like a very big field, but super interesting as well. Um, you earlier on mentioned that uh, some, some parallels exist between the brain of a mouse and the brain of a human being. And I also yeah. saw that you have a medium article trying to point out, like the, you sh showed the neuron between a mouse and a, and a human. Can you yeah. maybe go into a little bit into depth? Why do we use mice for experiments? Why is it so fascinating for us to experiment that? Yeah, that's a very good question. So if you want to know how a human brain works, why do we actually look at the mouse? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and sometimes um, uh, one of the main reasons uh, people are using model organisms in biology is because oh, it's not a computational model, but the organism is still a model. You can study a lot of processes that uh, mice are having. For example, mice have vision and they can see. They probably don't have such as good vision as primates have, but still, mice also allow you to use a lot of genetic tools. You can generate a lot of different mice. You can have a my, mouse with genetically encoded calcium indicator GCAMP to do the imaging experiments. You can have, uh, and also you have, my, could have much larger numbers of animals which is important for experiments because biology, especially like almost a lot of biological phenomena are high, high, highly variable. So you need to have a large number of samples mm -hmm. to be able to show uh, the effect that, 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 you, that you're studying. So, and historically, I mean, let me put it from, the, from this way uh, to answer two questions. Like, why do we compare with, with mouse and how do we compare with mouse? <laughs> so, so we compare with mouse because uh, we know much more about the mouse organization because this data is much more abundant. So uh, therefore, it, also, if you would like to understand the human brain evolution, because the human brain has expanded over 80 millions of years of evolution from the common ancestor of mice, of current mice and humans. And this area of the cortex seems to be responsible for generation, like a high variety of different functions, like reasoning, action planning, sensing. And another interesting thing is that human cortex, if you look into it, like a, a, a zoomed in approach, there will be a huge amount of different cell types. So basically, it seems to be that during the course of evolution, this area has been expanding so rapidly and taking new functions uh, that there was a necessity for cell type diversity. We don't know what this diversity is doing, like why one neurons respond to electric current this way or another, or why do they uh, look this way or another. So there are different theories about that. But definitely there is a high diversity that we are trying to explain, uh, which might hopefully help us to understand uh, like why the human brain is so smart or so capable. So what is the, essentially what is at the core of this problem in biology? What is the structure and function relationship? Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Yeah. Now that you also talked about current, I'm quite interested what uh, neuroscientists' view on the following topic is, uh, topic is, and that which is, uh, do you think that backpropagation is also done in the brain? Because there are some some parties that say yes, it does, but then there is this theory which says okay, it can also only transmit current in only one way, but not backwards. Yeah. How do you see that? Do you have an opinion on that as well? I, I, I do. So as, uh, as, I, as I wrote in neuroscience, because people are asking us, <laughs> is the back propagation? And as uh, Larry Abbott, professor from Columbia University, says, like, please, no back propaganda here. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one. Back propaganda. Um, 
uh, to be, well, as I studied some aspects of artificial intelligence, mostly deep neural networks, I mean, backpropagation is an amazing algorithm for estimate or esti locally estimating gradients and towards the same goal. And it works in neural networks and it clearly works in techniques. There are no doubts about that. You're also using neural nets to classify cells or to the dimensionality reduction using autoencoders. So we really appreciate this approach. Um, but when it comes to the claims that a uh, human brain is capable of doing backpropagation, uh, there are a lot of different twists in the story. Um, so first, in terms of biology, I can say you like biological point of view and something that might be, look like backpropagation. So in terms of biology, if you have a single cell, this single cell as a Set in the beginning receives the input from about 10,000 to 30,000 different neurons that it's connected to. And essentially the cell is blind. It could not really see any anything else from the network. Mm -hmm. so it's just basically, it sees everyone that it's connected from and everyone that it connects to. So for the backpropagation to work, especially when you're doing the forward, when, when you're doing the forward pass of backpropagation in the part of the algorithm, there wouldn't be any problem because you just, the problem are with the backward pass when you actually have to update the weights. Because in the brain, it doesn't seem, and like even in ganglia, even in a small rate, it doesn't seem that there is a backpropagating signal because it seems that the information is always going forward. There might be, of course, some recurrent loops, but uh, people are trying to find a backprop and it's almost impossible. But on the other hand, uh, there are some works like in University of Toronto by Blake Richards who developed, uh, who tries to teach the biological neural networks uh, in a more, uh, well, still artificial neural networks, but more in biologically plausible manner. So it's, it's very hard, but what it leads to is basically in one of his works, uh, like it was published, it, it, was, it was about towards uh, backpropagation using the complex dendrites. Uh, what it boils down to is that if you have apical dendrites, uh, well, if you have the single neuron has two compartments, like more somatic compartments, more apical compartments, it's possible for this neurons, well, the, the idea is that this basal dendrites that are connected more to the somatic compartments are potentially processing the information that comes from the sensory area, this kind of feed-forward signal. While the apical dendrites that is pointing to the top of the layer in the cortex that is kind of uh, basically all the information that goes, goes from the top layer might be getting this potential teaching signal. So for some neurons. So basically there are ways how you can play with artificial neural networks and uh, using the biologically realistic principle. So you will have not the full backpropagation of the action potential, but uh, some local approximation of the back of back of back propagation, and if you teach it uh, this biological neural network, it's very simple, like two free layers. Doesn't generalize much more. So I would really encourage everyone to take a look at this paper because it explains pretty well different aspects. But if you teach uh, this single neurons like that, it would lead to uh, the following idea: is that basically. <laughs> you might have the local approximation of backpropagation algorithm. So if you teach the same network that is trained on the, sa on this, on, on the same data and data set using backpropagation, and this algorithm that Blake Richards is proposing, you might, have see, you might end up seeing the same receptive fields in the single cells. So which potentially points us to the idea that the cortex, if cortex is not doing exactly backpropagation, it might be doing something similar. Mm -hmm. Potentially, so there is a there is a possibility for that. We don't know how exactly it's being done, and it's a very active area of research in deep mind and many other fields. But I actually believe that, at, well, in the decades maybe from now for, of research, we will see much more clear idea how cortex is actually optimizing the gradients. Mm -hmm. What uh, for a neuroscientist is the most interesting part of the brain? If you can formulate the question like that. I mean, the brain itself is like a super fascinating structure building uh, yeah. consisting of different components. What for you is the most interesting part of the brain? I mean, uh, everyone would have his own opinion depending on, the, but I, I would say, I would, would start with the backtracking a little bit. Mo most interesting should be most interesting for what? 
like if you're interested in disease, maybe in epilepsy, maybe hippocampus would be part of the brain that you're interested in. If you're interested in vision, probably visual cortex would be something that you would like to study. It always depends on the area, on the, on the, on the question. Because as anything in science, at least, you can study in many different dimensions. Like it all depends on the question. But I mean, for me as a neuroscientist, I think actually what is really unexplored and hopefully will be understood better is how brain, well, how does the brain generate action? Mm-hmm. So basically, uh, we have might have a lot of insight inside into how the brain is processing the information, like by looking at the visual cortex. But really, what was probably one of the main functions that the nervous system was doing since the beginning of the evolution is generating the behavior. It's moving. First of all, it's moving the body around, <laughs> so and controlling it. So, uh, which in higher, more complex animals like mammals is basically how does the perception goes into action. How does this transformation take place? And part of this, some uh, area of these questions we are trying to study using system neuroscience approach here at the Allen Institute when we have goal-directed behavior of animals and then we look into the visual cortex and try to decouple this connection. But this is like a really hard problem and potentially uh, in the future, actually, uh, as you probably have seen in the news, uh, in 2020, one, we will have Karl Svoboda, who will be guiding the Institute of Neural Dynamics and Computation uh, at Allen Institute for Brain Science. It will happen uh, well, in a couple of years. It takes time to establish the new institute. He will be coming from Genelia uh, Research Campus. And potentially this would be, a, uh, this almost the whole institute would be related to this question of neural computation. How did neural circuits are computing stuff? that can generate behavior. So I think that's very fascinating time to be alive. And mm. yeah. Definitely, definitely. What do you think? How much do we actually know about the brain? Is it that we can say, okay, we know at least a little bit, or do we say we still have a lot of work to do when it comes to the brain? Um, I cannot pinpoint the actual philosopher who pointed this. Um, so... Basically, the, the idea, the metaphor that I would answer to it is basically this circle. Like imagine you draw a circle on the paper and the inside of the circle is much do you know? While, this, while the outer side of the circle would be how much do you don't know? So basically, it doesn't matter how much you expand, the more you know, the more you don't know. <laughs> Mm-hmm. So, at least in my opinion, uh, this is uh, this is how how it works. But in terms of the brain and biology in general, uh, the brain as physical system, like it's it's there in in a head, it's finite. It's very high number of cells, as many as mm-hmm. cells in the stars in the Milky Way galaxy. But in principle, I believe you can map all of them if you if you use the method. At some point in the future, you will be you will be able to know how different cells are connected, uh, like at a very small level of resolution. But uh, what I think we are lacking in neuroscience now is, and maybe this is what is true for a lot of data-intense fields that started generating a lot of data, but people still think in all their concepts that come from neuroscience training about it. And in fact, a lot of these concepts were inherited from psychology and philosophy before, before that from Aristotle and so on. So I think we are lacking the complete, the general theory of how the brain works. Mm-hmm. In general theory, I mean in, in a specific application, it could be that we will need to have many different theories how the brain works and for different, like how sensory system work and how memory are, are, are being organized might be different, might, might require some different theories. But now when we have such a huge, huge, huge amount of data coming, uh, what uh, analysts or theoreticians, which I consider myself, are we actually don't have enough time to think and like arrange this data. The data is just throwing, and you need to publish papers, and you are always in a rush. So you basically end up coming only to the surface, to the tiny surface area. But honestly, uh, I think what is important also is that we record a lot of data and. Actually, one of the principles upon which our institute is based is the open science. So basically, when we accumulate this data and put it in the cloud 
and then people can download it and do their analysis. So gradually, when we have like a lot of data and it'll be well organized, some AI algorithms might help us to understand and build much more bigger picture of what the brain is doing. Mm, interesting. So. Yeah, but that, that's my vision for now, at least. Mm -hmm. Like uh, now uh, saying that the Allen Institute puts out data, do you have already something like a framework or so, which is specifically for the brain? You know, like um, I mean, we, we have many different things. So for these people who might be more from the engineering background, would like to try themselves for modeling. So we developed the toolkit uh, that can run, uh, that could be found on the GitHub called uh, Brain Modeling Toolkit (BMTK). Mm -hmm. It can it contains many different uh, models of, from single neurons, point neuron models, detailed biophysical models that I was talking about, or neural population models. So people can download it and play with it. It's in Python, so it might be interesting maybe for some of listeners of your podcast. Also, we have a Allen SDK um, library that that's, it's it's a big Python library that allows you to it's open source course, as uh, many things that we put in the cloud. It allows you to interact with a lot of our data, uh, neuroscience databases, download the data, play with it, and we have very detailed uh, documentation description that you can use to this tool, uh, well, to see how things are organized in this toolkit. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, but the most important thing I think is the, is the API that allows you to download this data and documentation, because otherwise you would not be able to understand where these things are and mm -hmm. <laughs> how they correspond to. Mm, that's good input, Anatoly. Thanks a lot. I will put the link to uh, the, all the toolkits and stuff like that in the description. Yeah. I think that's very interesting for people. Um, a few moments ago, we talked about the limit. Do you think the brain is still growing? We reached a limit and at some point AI, I think, as I remember correctly, will just take mm -hmm. over because we are just limited in our brain size. Oh, we are coming to the philosophy. philosophy. Yeah, that's actually... Interesting idea. I mean, from the point of view of evolutionary biology, the brain is already pretty big and have a, has a lot of gyruses. So it, it it's, would be hard to grow a larger area of the neocortex inside inside of the school. Uh, it, it's an interesting proposition, but also I would say that the time scale on which the brain is growing, or at least it was growing and getting more complex, is the time scale of millions of years. Yet all human history at least written human history, let's put it this way, is 10, 15,000 years. So actually all the human culture is a very new thing on the evolutionary time scale. So it's very likely that our brains are very similar to the brains of people from the past, like 10, 15,000 years. We are not much smarter than they are. But what we have, we have culture, have a language. So and we have a body of knowledge that has accumulated from the previous times. So it's very important for us to keep uh, keeping up With this, with this knowledge, but in terms of the capabilities, well, I mean, I might express maybe not so popular opinion. I've been thinking a lot about it, and at some point I was very much excited about how the connection with the brain-computer interfaces might extend our possibilities. But I would say that we already here, like everyone has this little mobile device with them. Okay, imagine you wanted to know I cannot provide the reference, but there was a very good metaphor that I read uh, re recently. Imagine you wanted to know the population of London, like 100 years ago. What you would need to do? You would have to write letters to the London councillor at that time. And so then you'll have to go and count number of people or like to go to a lot of administrative processing to get to know how many people live there. Now to, to know how many people live in London, you'll just pick up your phone and Google it. It will take a couple of seconds. So we took it took us like hundred years to come to this level to come to connect the knowledge using to connect us to the knowledge using Google. Mm -hmm. And but breaking interfaces, if it really works, it will yield to go like from couple of seconds to couple of let's say hundreds of milliseconds. But I wonder if it's gonna make such a big difference because we already have various fast connection using Google. So. I mean, brain-computer interfaces are very exciting and amazing. I think we should keep doing that. And they have a lot of uh, applications in neural prosthetics, like people who don't have limbs or uh, people who might consider like using like extension of the body. Uh, so some other tools uh, that they could be using, like well, 
cyborgs, if you like. So this, this I think, might be coming and might have a lot of applications for meta theory or maybe for um, moving of the tools purpose. But from the philosophical perspective, I would say that we're kind of already there when we have, when almost everyone has the access to almost all the information that we have. So some tools that we have uh, are kind of already embodied. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, we, we basically augmented ourselves with the smartphone, right? We are basically like cyborgs already. But the big bottleneck is, as you probably know from the presentation from Elon Musk on Neuralink, is yeah. that we're just too slow to type. And then a, uh, a BMI would be quite comfortable, I would say. Um, yeah, I mean, definitely. I mean, uh, there already works from the Berkeley. For example, you can train the convolutional, well, the recurrent neural net based on uh, electrocortic, well, by, based on, on the signal that are recorded from the surface of the cortex. And then you can even decode the phrases that there are people saying. So this might, this might, this might, this might actually work. But I mean, Elon Musk has his vision. And I actually have some friends of friends who work in Neuralink. They come to society for neuroscience meeting. It's our big 30,000 people conference. Oh, that's in neuroscience. Big. That's big. Yeah, it's, it's really big. It's like a super crowd. <laughs> I call it Burning Man for Neuroscience. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Anatoly, how do you define intelligence? Oh, that's, a, that's another general question. So I think it depends on the field. Uh, you would define intelligence in mach for a machine learning system one way and intelligence for... Uh, in neuroscience domain differently in robotics. But I would say that is the, if I may, is something that allows you to do an adaptive behavior to adapt to the environment. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The, the, and how optimally you solve the tasks that environment puts, puts you in. Mm, I see. In a, in a way. Mm -hmm. So basically in, in this way, you might try to find a similar definition for, I don't have a, precise and clear definition, but the defi in my opinion, this definition should be similar to the artificial agents that you can simulate and for actual animals that you can try and test. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So. So also quite fascinating how, for instance, reinforcement learning is coupled with the human intelligence, yeah. like the logic that you have an, an agent, you have the environment and you get a reward from it. Depends on if it's positive or negative and then you adapt your, your system, so to speak. Um, speaking of adaptation, uh, can you maybe explain, as, a, as an expert in this field, what is neuroplasticity and how does it affect us? It's a very general question again, I know, but yeah, maybe yeah. you can give your own opinion on, on what neuroplasticity is. Yeah. And oh, I mean, neuroplasticity is affecting us all the time since yeah. the day we were born until the last day when we die. Yeah. So, uh, but uh, I would start maybe a bit far that saying that our body has many different organs and brain is maybe a the organ that keeps in the process of development over the course of the whole life. So exactly this feature, like being able to change the single neuron properties uh, in response to the changes from the environment, from te some teaching signal that we get is actually something that allows us to learn new languages, pick up musical instruments or learning new subjects if you're studying in the university. So basically, the brain was made to be plastic. Uh, and plastic in what sense? This plasticity is basically changes brain properties, like neural properties, over time in response to some changes. For On the level of single cell, for example, if you have a two cells, one cell is connected to the other, uh, there is such a thing as spike time-dependent plasticity. So it's basically, if there is first the input on the cell A, then the input on the cell B, mm -hmm. if first cell A fires, and then immediately after there's the cell B fires, in this case, it leads to the immediate uh, transmission of the information, and then this connection between the cells will get stronger. So this is the Habian plasticity principle. Like, and there are synapses, usually mostly excitatory ones, that are showing Habian plasticity. So this is one field. The other thing is that, uh, for example, when the neuron is firing a lot of, like, more than it should be, inside the neurons there is a calcium build up, but you, you can measure with the G-comp as I discussed earlier in the beginning, but also if there is a buildup of the calcium activity, it might trigger some cascades, biochemical cascades into the single cell in such a way that uh, it would um, 
basically change the the composition of the proteins in the membrane of a neuron. So it will kind of scale down its activity a little bit. It's called the synaptic scaling. So um, there are many different there are many different levels, and also on the level of perception, when mm -hmm. someone is looking at the screen, if you there are even some illusions, like in the visual system, if you um, look at the ecran with a bunch of different dots, and then you concentrate your vision on the central dot, and there are some blurry dots in the periphery of your vision, at some point you stop seeing them. Mm -hmm. That's because your visual system adapts to this. And in particular, like I studied some aspects of it, it might be related to the single cell properties of the neurons in the visual cortex that basically change their frequency of their spiking of, of their neural impulses that they generate over the course of stimulation. Mm -hmm. So plasticity is there uh, on many different levels, but what it aim, what it helps us to do, uh, what neuroscientists basically to helps us to adapt to changes in the environment, so the animal can change the behavior, or the sensory system can change uh, the amount of information that is receives from the world and how it processes that. Mm -hmm. Thanks a lot, Anatoly. It was a great ex explanation. Um, what I would also be interested in is: is it true that kids have have it easier or is it easier to have neuroplasticity as a kid so to speak than if you're grown up which makes it easier for instance for kids to uh, to learn a new language for instance what would you say yeah yeah i i should say that i'm not cognitive neuroscientist but i have some area some general knowledge uh, about that so what i can say is that uh, if you think about kids of course it's much easier and sometimes if i'm not mistaken there are people saying that Kids have some kind of window of window of plasticity, so basically, when they're able to learn things uh, very early, like if if the kid has not been exposed to the language at all, there are some Mowgli uh, exam, exa examples. Then they would not be able to start to speak like after four or five, if I'm not mistaken. If they have not heard human speech, they would not be able to speak, and. Basically, this opportunity is missed for the entire life of this mm -hmm. so of, the, of the subject. Then, of course, and also it has a lot of evolutionary advantages because a lot of animals uh, and primates they are learning the basic skills for survival at the beginning of life, and then they don't have to learn as much uh, later down. Humans are very different because we have to teach ourselves new things all the time to stay at the top of our field. And uh, this is probably what, what makes human brain much more plastic than the brain of many other animals. Uh, but still, like it's much easier to pick up the new language if you're in the in, the, in early on versus later on. Mm -hmm. Yet, of course, there is no limit. Like even I have some friends who like pick up new language every couple of years. It's, it's, like, it's, it's, it's like a sport. Mm -hmm. So, but I mean, I bet it's much easier in the in the beginning. Mm -hmm. So it's so so interesting when you talk about it because it's so infectious. Uh, when you talk about it, then you become, you have more questions and you become more interested in neuroscience, computational neuroscience, yeah. and how the brain behaves. Um, what is it that AI cannot build? For instance, if we have a look at computer vision, because you have to label the data, you have to tell the computer, "Hey, this is a car. This is not a car. Mm -hmm. This is a cat. This is a dog," and so yeah. on. Why is it that we tell little kids or babies? We tell it it's a cat it's, or it's a dog. And then after maybe three or four times, the kid knows that it's a dog or a cat. Actually, I, I don't have kids. I don't <laughs> really know, to be honest. Okay. Uh, so, but my friends who have kids <laughs> tell, tell me, uh, well, this is like anecdotal knowledge that it actually takes a while. It's not two, three times. <laughs> Okay. Hmm. It, take, it takes much. It, it takes actually a substantial amount of time to explain the kid what is a cat, what hmm. is a dog, and they mix things all the time. So there are some similarities between how the artificial neural networks are doing and, and babies. But interesting enough, uh, there are some examples. For example, it's called the one-shot learning. This is something that seems that only humans are able to know artificial systems. And so one-shot learning is amazing stuff. So basically, it's mostly in the auditory domain. So when people are presenting to humans like many different noises, these are pure white noises with different random number seeds, like one noise, like something like this. Mm -hmm. And then in the second sequence, they, are, they present another sequence and then they ask if they have heard this noise before. And it turned out that people are very good at this task. Like with 
like 80 to 90%, they were able to identify noises. And noise doesn't have any structure in it. It's like it's as random as it might be. So somehow there is the representation of this information inside inside the brain, inside the memory, potentially the cord, in the cortex, in the short-time memory, that allows humans to identify it. Yet the machine cannot do it. You have to present these noises like 10,000 times. Well, well, presumably it will be still better than because if it, if statistically speaking the structure would be exactly the same in the input stimuli, it might not be able to generalize. But humans are are good at that mm-hmm. somehow. Yeah, so. it's quite quite fascinating because I would think if a computer hears hears a noise, you can do like something like an FFT, for instance, mm-hmm. and then yeah. after some point it would it would recognize the signal. Um, what would you say is a human learning un- supervised or unsupervised? Uh, humans, well, clearly we do both in some sense. I mean, when a kid is learning how about the cars and uh, like the different animals in the zoo, of course it's supervised, so that there is no other information that is coming that is, that is coming. But uh, later on, I would say that when humans go to school or like go to the university, like. Now I'm just saying my personal opinion, so mm-hmm. it's, it's not it's not so much science based. But in my opinion, what what we acquire is the ability. Well, the more we learn, the more we acquire the ability to learn new things, and then it becomes much easier to learn new subjects because we already have some some kind of system that allows us to to go to go through it. So, but also like imagine you come to a new job and you there is a potential workflow how you work with the data, and of course you there is no way. There is potentially a way for you to figure out how these things work by yourself. You have infinite amount of time, but very often you don't have an infinite amount of, ta- of time, so you have to follow this work, uh, this uh, paths that has been already established before. So you ask your colleague, and your colleague points you to this. So it's purely supervised. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so what we or- can do is now uh, we can cover one, one, two, or three questions from uh, from a person that sent us some questions. Perfect idea. So one question would be, do you have any advice for people with life science background that find comprehending the more computational topics a bit challenging? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good question because unfortunately, as far as I know, in like in Russia or maybe in France where I studied, um, people who are doing biology are not early exposed to numerical tools and to the to mathematics, which is the key. But uh, in my opinion, I mean, when I, I was teaching some courses for master students and um, there were people coming from backgrounds, from philosophy, unexpected, from some from neuroscience and physics, but there were like a lot of people who are coming from very unexpected fields to neuroscience. So what I think what is very useful is to get into programming. So because this allows you to uh, formalize the way how you think about things. So you can um, basically write, stop, start working, working on the on this, on this problems. So programming and maybe um, potentially take some math classes if the university allows you to have mm-hmm. in linear algebra and discrete mathematics. Because like like learning some basics in pure math is almost always necessary to come into the computational neuroscience or artificial intelligence. So, but it's possible there are a lot of information that's available, but I still think that when you're doing math, it's not enough just for you to learn the subjects. You have to work a little bit on yourself. You have to work on the exercises. In this case, when you actually do the exercises, you really understand how things are. Therefore, learning about this at the university might be mm-hmm. a very good opportunity. Mm-hmm. Great. Second question would be, what about the hippocampus makes it so interesting to study from a computational perspective? Oh yeah, well, another very broad question. Well, hippocampus is maybe one of the most studied areas in the brain, <laughs> as well as, um, yeah. So, hippocampus, well, one of the reasons why people get interested in the hippocampus <laughs> is because they first discovered that there was epilepsy in it. Then they removed hippocampus on both sides from so famous HM patient. And then they realized that people with two hippocampi that are removed at both sides cannot generate new memories. They always stay in their like current state and with a window of 10 minutes approximately. And then they forget everything else that has happened. So 
And that's very interesting that these people might end up saying the same phrases that are kind of captured in their past, like before. So mm-hmm. and they're moving in their like, 10 minutes window and it's very hard for them to navigate. So hippocampus always fascinated people and still fascinates about how memory are being formed. Mm-hmm. So this is like the key. But uh, I would say that uh, the current understanding, at least in my opinion, is that it's not the actual place where memories are stored, but this is like a, the, the tip of the pyramid where the information comes from the sensory areas and from one cortical area to another, then it comes to hippocampus and then it comes back to the cortex where this information is being stored. But without coming to the hippocampus, it cannot stay in the cortex for a long enough time. Uh, yeah, I see. So, yeah, so hippocampus, it's it's a complex area. It, like, it has a lot of rhythms that are located there. So you might think about how do the spiking neural networks are actually generating the periodic activity there. And uh, basically, there are a lot of neurons that have a lot of different properties, so you can study that. And also, you can stick the electrodes into the hippocampus and see the activity that is happening there during different phases of memory task, like retrieval or encoding new memories. So mm-hmm. That's uh, super interesting. That. Thanks, Anatoly, for answering that. Next one yeah. would be, and the last one that comes from from external. From my understanding, computational neuro is relatively new field, but it seems like it's growing rapidly. What kind of challenges is it addressing now? And what are your expectations for the kind of questions it can address in the near future? Mm. Yeah, that's a good question also with a lot of philosophical background. Yeah, computational neuroscience as a field has been established maybe at the time when people nailed the term computational neuroscience. in my opinion, when there was the first article published by uh, Patricia Churchland and um, Christoph Koch and Terry Sinovsky, uh, that was like, okay, we, ha- we need to have a new field, the computational neuroscience. And then people started working on that. And it was initially the attempt to use the advances in computer in, in computing, in or well, in computers basically to model some processes that are happening inside the brain, some information processes, basically use modeling in order to get a better idea how this, how do things work. And uh, this field is relatively new, it's growing and in many different directions. Like uh, there was a lot of growth at initially at incorporating the details of single neurons and making the spiking neural networks to explain certain aspects of the brain. And then later on, I think what, what is happening now is computational neuroscience and starts to merge into the artificial intelligence and deep neural networks. So this is, I think, where the field is actually growing. Um, and people are trying to link these two things together. It's, it's, it's very hard. As I was saying in the beginning, these things are a bit far apart for now. But now as more data is being gathered from the, uh, from the brain, from human brains or brains from other animals, uh, the closer it might, this merge might happen. And it might, well, like in the optimal way, it might help for us to build better algorithms for artificial intelligence systems. It's, it's one direction. And on the other hand, it might help us to use artificial intelligence systems to study the brain better, like to use the better convolutional neural networks to segment the data in the electron microscopy or classify cells into the different groups. So, but in, in my opinion, these two fields might start like neuroscience and artificial intelligence, true computational neuroscience. They might start generating this kind of positive feedback loop when one field is helping each other. For now, it's more artificial systems that are helping neuroscience. But I hope like sooner or later, there will be another push from neuroscience back to neuroscience. As it has happened already at the time when perceptron has been developed. Mm-hmm. So... It, when some ideas were taken from biology and artificial systems, we'll made bait of this. So now we take artificial systems, apply it back to biology, and then sooner or later, I hope we'll be looping back, so to say. That's great. Yeah. Let's see what the future brings. Um, yeah. Is the, the, because you're working there, the Allen Brain Institute, um, is it also working on discovering what causes Alzheimer's and uh, things like that? I'm sh- quite sure, yeah? Yeah, yeah. We actually just starting... Uh, what, me and me and many other people are just starting uh, the project about the Alzheimer's disease. Uh, we will see. So basically, there are a lot of 
fascinating questions in neuroscience, like how consciousness work, how do we make decisions, but there are also other other aspects as various diseases, epilepsy, which I've been working on, or Alzheimer, which brings a lot of burden for the society. And also there is a trend for people getting Alzheimer's disease earlier and earlier in their lifetime. So it will definitely affect a lot of people in the developed world where mm -hmm. people can live long enough <laughs> to get Alzheimer's. But I, I mean, the Alzheimer's disease, the problem is that uh, even big pharma companies like Johnson Johnson, Pfizer, uh, they gave up on developing the drugs for Alzheimer's because about 99.9% of the drugs that were on the market are not efficient. Mm. So that they came to the conclusion that you need to do much more basic research to understand the mechanisms of this disease. I see. And so before new drugs would be established and developed. And this is actually where our institute might help or data analysis pipelines that we developed and understanding the human cell types uh, that we established in mouse cell types uh, might actually bring some difference and some detailed understanding. But this this might be more related not to the electric activity of single cells, but understanding the genes that are being switched on or off during different stages of the Alzheimer's disease. Mm. Incredibly interesting. Um, let's say if someone is very inspired by your by this podcast, which I'm sure they are, a lot of people out there, um, what would you say? Is it good to specialize in one field or do you think the broader your knowledge is, the better it is to have, like you know a bit about programming, mathematics, the brain mm -hmm. and stuff like that. Do you think that's the better approach? I think, well, if I were to give an advice for younger students who are there, I think very specific specialization is, I mean, it's good, but it might be a burden. <laughs> So it's better, I mean, when you're doing it, let's put it this way, before you enter the grad school, you have a window of opportunity that you can be studying almost any subject. And I think it's important for uh, students to study some programming, mathematics, take some physics lessons and in neuroscience and psychology. And then out of this broad perspective, choose something where they want to specialize. It's a bit like, Uh, like um, like in brain development. First, you see this all this opportunity, but then you have to choose a particular path. And when people want to come into the grad school, and if they want to come into the grad school and get a PhD, um, it's better to find some area that might be still broad in terms of tools, like you might be still using programming and data analysis, uh, which will develop, which would allow you to have a transferable skill set if you would like to switch from one area to another. But also you need to, one, uh, you, you would need to have a certain direction, like some questions that you would think at the time when you entered the grad school, it will be interesting in like four, five, six from, by the time when you finish. So, It's really about the strategy, how locate your different resources. But neuroscience by itself is highly interdisciplinary field. Uh, and uh, it's important to have a broad perspective on who is doing what in what areas. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, at the beginning, you mentioned that you also teach lessons about neuroscience. What would you recommend in terms of books and maybe online where people can uh, teach themselves, so to speak, autonomously neuroscience? Um, I would say that... Um, There are some very good computer. Uh, there were some good courser classes. Uh, I, I've been working with the professor Adriana Fairholt from the University of Washington, mm -hmm. and uh, she made uh, with uh, Rajesh Zhao. She made a, a very fascinating class on the Coursera. So you, that uh, called is actually called computational neuroscience. Mm -hmm. uh, I would really recommend that as a start, like to bring together how neuron works and how sensory systems operate. Uh, but also. If someone would like to get a bit more into the hardcore neuroscience and hard problems, there are very good books by Yuri Bujaki. It's actually written Georgi Bujaki, mm -hmm. who is one of the top and most cited neurosciences in the world. And he he did a lot of work and he wrote two books. Uh, maybe the first one is a good to start. It's, it's called Rhythms of the Brain. So it's about hippocampus and its connection with the cortex and sleep-wake cycles. And the second is about the brain inside out. Uh, it's basically about the shifting perspective uh, from sensory systems to the brain as an information device, but not a, not something that processes information, but something that creates information. 
which is kind of paradigm shifting mm-hmm. that he's trying to push. And it's also like these two books I would definitely recommend for someone who wants to get more into neuroscience. Mm-hmm. And of course, take some machine learning specialization classes because I'm pretty sure that, uh, for example, deep learning uh, by Andrew and Gian Coursera uh, could be a very good one place to, place to start. And then hopefully through combination of neuroscience knowledge and deep learning, this would help uh, students to understand what they actually want to do. Mm, very good advice. Thanks, Anatoly. It's funny yeah. how somehow if you talk about machine learning, deep learning, all the way it goes always back to Andrew Ng. So it's funny. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah, he just did a lot of stuff. Yeah, yeah, that's, <laughs> that's right. That's he actually right. organized Coursera. Yeah, yeah. So uh, that was a super interesting talk, Anatoly. I, I have so many more questions, but maybe we can do a second part if you have time, of course. But we'll keep it short uh, this yeah. time. So uh, I would say, Bolshoi uh, Spasibo, if I said that correctly. Danke. And thanks a ton again for your, for your knowledge and uh, sharing it with the world. And um, I would say see you in the second episode, hopefully. Hopefully, yeah. Thank you very much, Joseph, for organizing this. It was a great pleasure to listen and to participate in your podcast. Thank you, Anatoly.